Welcome to Creative Place, the podcast for creative placemakers. I'm your host, Andrea Orlando. We caught up with Washington-based creative placemaker Philippa Hughes at the 2019 TomTom Festival in Charlottesville, Virginia. She talks about a creative placemaking project that she developed to bring ordinary people together across the political divide over food and art to engage in conversations about politics and policy. When we spoke, she was just getting ready to bring this concept to six other cities across the nation. What started as an act of frustration with the state of civil discourse has snowballed into a program with momentum and funding. So you describe yourself as an accidental creative placemaker. How did you get started in all this? Well, You know, when I first moved to Washington, D.C., I was a lawyer. And so I have zero training in planning or even the arts. I mean, I went to law school. Um, But when I got here to D.C., I just felt like bored, (laughs) basically. And I never really liked being a lawyer. And so I just started inviting people over to my house for these salons. And I went to a lot of art events, so I started blogging about arts and kind of building a little following on this blog, which was really interesting and weird. And then the salons kept getting bigger and bigger. And so I found like a raw retail space that was uh, around the corner for me. And I did like a big event, like a uh, not it was more than a salon at that point. I mean, it was like video projections and performance art and a band. So it was like kind of a big art rave party and a band, like a, a space that was, they were trying to rent it out on this street that had, um, that was starting to gentrify basically mm-hmm. because of people like me. And it was an amazing experience. Like hundreds of people came, it was so much fun. And so I did it again at a, another um, space down the street, like also a raw retail space that was there, that the owner was trying to rent out. And this time we charged a little money, like we charged $10 to get in. We actually charged for the alcohol at the bar. And that was like an amazing experience. Like hundreds of people came and we made money. And so I was like, oh, maybe I could make money like doing stuff like this. I don't have to be a lawyer. So that kind of got me on this trajectory of doing these kind of events in raw spaces all over DC. And I realized that, you know, at the time, I just I just wanted to throw art parties and do art events to bring people together. I didn't realize that because I was doing them in neighborhoods that were gentrifying or changing, transforming, um, I was like kind of laying the groundwork for doing placemaking. Um, because a lot of those neighborhoods eventually turned into, you know, these neighborhoods filled with restaurants and bars and, you know, the abandoned storefronts filled up with retail. And so that's what I mean by being accidental. Like, I didn't know that that's what I was doing. And then that result happened. But because I didn't know what I was doing, like, when I look back on that time, I realized, like, you know, I, I could have done things better. I, I, I just kind of plowed into these neighborhoods because I had, you know, this sort of selfish intent. But if I were doing true placemaking, I would have 
been more respectful of what that neighborhood had been like and the people who had lived there and who were about to be displaced as a result of all this development that was happening. So, yeah. So, so I guess in a way, by calling myself accidental, I was like, it was, I didn't know, you know? I, didn't, I wasn't even trying to be a placemaker. Um, so at least I didn't even have good intentions, so to speak. Um, but now, in the last couple of years, as I started to realize the kind of impact that those things, you know, those kinds of activations can have on a neighborhood, I've totally changed how I approach um, doing that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So what, when did you move to D.C.? Um, and I moved to the area in 2001. Oh. And, yeah. And then I moved into, the, into D.C. proper in 2003. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I've been around, you know, long enough to figure some stuff out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how are you doing things differently? Well, I mean, the main thing is, like, for example, the very first project that I was really trying to be more cognizant of how to do this in a more respectful way was um, in 2016. And I got a grant from the DC Office of Planning to do, and they assigned me to this neighborhood called, um, well, they called it Lower Georgia Avenue. Um, the people who live there call it Parkview and Pleasant Plains. And so the thing, the major thing that I did differently was I spent like six months not doing any anything other than talking and listening to people in the neighborhood. And I would just keep digging. Like I'd talk to one person and, you know, and ask them a lot of questions and then say, well, who else should I talk to? Like all I did for six months before I came up with a single idea for the the activation that we eventually did was just talk to people. So I think that was the thing that made it a much more powerful project and a project that I can still talk about, like I still talk about to this day, um, as sort of, you know, air quotes, success. Mm-hmm. It's extraordinary that you got that amount of time to just talk to people. I know. Well, what, well you, because, why? Because people, because, well, um, why do you say that? <laughs> I, I say that because it seems that we're, as a society, we're increasingly becoming obsessed with metrics and, oh, and quick results. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny you should say that because that was a real sort of tension point in during doing that project because there was, you know, I felt like this, not, well, I don't know if it was an artificial deadline, but there was this sort of deadline imposed and, you know, I had to check in with the person I was working with the whole time, which, of course, this all makes sense that this is what you would do. And... I was getting a lot of pressure, like, you know, when are you going to come up with this milestone? They had all these milestones, and I would, like, miss all the milestones, because I'm like, I haven't, I, I, I just, I just missed all the milestones, <laughs> like, I just, you know what I mean? Like, I was like, I'm not ready. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's funny, because I, I think they tried to impose a timeline on it that I just couldn't meet, ultimately, because I was just you know, I just was, I just didn't feel comfortable moving forward until I'd done all those conversations. And in the end, I think they, they agreed, you know, like in the end, it turned out amazing. And I think they eventually saw the value of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was kind of funny because I'm like, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So, so you imposed a slow cooking process yeah. onto it. Yeah. yeah that, they tried to impose structure. Mm-hmm. 
Like, I, and it's kind of funny because that is sort of the often the tension between artists and you know the world mm-hmm. <laughs> basically it's like I'll just you can't force creativity I mean I don't want to glorify art making too in the sense of like oh like it's just some kind, of, some kind of inspiration that like strikes out a magical some magical way I mean there is some magic to it I think but also it's just hard work like it took me six months to like get to a point when the magic could even happen so yeah it's a combination of magic and like a lot of hard work could you give me an example of a, a project that came out of that work yeah so um well so that first project we called sea change and what we did what it was a kind of a multi-prong project what we did was um we made these sort of cinema quality portraits of people who lived in the neighborhood and just and projected them into the windows of these abandoned you know empty storefronts I shouldn't say abandoned I mean they were just empty but they'd been emptied for a long time and on the sides of buildings like big and basically my my sort of underlying idea about it was we have to see each other like the thing one of the things I heard over and over from people that I talked to was they felt like nobody saw them and they would walk down the street and people had their earbuds in or you know be looking down at their phones just people just weren't interacting and every person I talked to was like I'd really like to talk to my neighbors and not just I mean everybody said it the young people who were moving in the older people who had been there for a long time was so interesting so so, so my underlying concept was like the idea of seeing, like see your neighbor, and as a result of being introduced to your neighbor on in these images. Oh, and it was really important to me also to do it in video style rather than um, still photography because I re- it makes it more dynamic. Like you could see people's eyes blinking and the wind in their hair. It was so cool. I mean, it was just beautiful imagery. I, it was these guys I hired um, who are called Composite Co. And it was so you know it's. I'm kind of skipping around, but it's so cool. You know, we were talking before earlier about how it's like when you meet people who like kind of just get you right away and they just like, I just explained to them, okay, here's my image, you know, my vision. And they just did it. Yeah. It's just such a great feeling. People get you. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think I saw some videography of that project. Oh, yeah. It's on your website. Oh, yeah. Our website, right? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. On Sea Change. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, so as part of that program, though, we did do a series of um, workshops and conversations so that, you know, it wasn't just like passive viewing of this thing on the walls, but okay, now let's get together and actually talk and have like a real frank conversation about, you know, some of the issues that are facing this neighborhood. So that was kind of cool, too. And then we projected those images at nighttime um, on the sides of buildings, and I had a little crew of people standing on uh, along the streets near the projections to stop people, or or if people stopped, they could engage them in conversation and ask them questions and explain what was going on. You know. Anyway, so I've just been really thinking about like it's very important to create spaces and you know placemaking, all that stuff. Love it, but we do have to actually force people to have the conversations like that it doesn't just happen yeah we we have to be intentional yes we have to be intentional about the conversations so 
This is a great segue to talking about blueberries and cherries. Mm. <laughs> what prompted you to start hosting dinner parties for people with opposing political views? That sounds brave. Very brave. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, actually, blueberries and cherries got started right around the time this project, the Sea Change project, was happening. So I'd been, I'd spent most of 2016 working on this project, you know, doing my listening tour, so to speak. And you know, during that time, the campaigns were raging on, and you know, Donald Trump was getting nominated by the RNC, and you know, all that stuff was happening. So, so there were all these parallels of trying to figure out like what's going on. Like as I was trying to figure out what's happening in this neighborhood, I was also at the same time, you know, at politics, thinking what is going on. Like things are really, you know, turning upside down. And I was reading all these books, like hillbilly elegy and gilded rage like i was reading all the things to try to understand like how you know how could donald trump rise up and the way he did and then the election and i mean it was so shocking but then the very next day we had to install all the videos so for two days after the election when everybody i knew was being catatonic and laying in bed i and my fellow work you know my colleagues were out installing this project and it was such a, it was very cathartic, but also like, wow, this is such a weird experience right now. And so, I don't know, like, I don't know what got into me, honestly. I just put this thing on Facebook that said, hey, if you voted for Donald Trump, would you like to come over for dinner and talk to me? <laughs> like, you know, cause I was like on this list, you know, I was like into listening, you know? And nobody responded, of course. I, that was going to be my follow-up question. You yeah, got no, takers. No, no, no. <laughs> nobody responded. Not even a... Not, no, none. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to like be intentional, you know? So I just started asking around. And just... I finally... like It was like one of those things where an acquaintance of mine emailed me when she, she saw it. She's a dem, but she was like, I think I used to work with a Trump supporter. <laughs> like five years ago, you know, and they, so she like got and put me in touch with that woman and turns out, yep, she is a Trump supporter. And then that woman came and brought her boyfriend and her across the hall neighbor who are all supporters. I just had to keep digging until I found them. Cause you know, DC, like it's uber liberal, like finding the other side was not going to be easy. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so all of it just came out, uh, it just started with my just urge to understand and and I think on the heels of all that, you know, the, the creative placemaking stuff I was doing, like, it just all kind of fit together. And it was such an amazing experience, like I just kept doing it over and over. So, yeah, and I mean, it's been an, it's been an amazing experience for me. So anyway, so that's why I'm like trying to figure out like, how do I have, you know, give this ex amazing experience to more people and get other people to do it, basically. Were you nervous the first time? Nervous? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course I was. And it was funny because I didn't, because they were strangers, you know, truly strangers. So that was kind of interesting. Like, so I actually thought how brave of them to like come to my, this, to a person's house and do that. So I thought I kind of had a lot of respect for them. So as they came in, I was like, hey, like, this is, I think this is great, you know, and I think we all felt that in the room. I had invited a couple liberal friends, so we'd be at balance table. Mm -hmm. So I think we all felt like, you know, we're doing some, like, we're doing a good thing, you know. Yeah. Don't, nobody even knows what's going to happen. Anyway, but people came and they just started arguing about politics, like, right away. <laughs> <laughs> 
which is fine. Like that's, I guess that's why we all thought we were there, you know? Mm -hmm. So then as I did each one after that, I would try to institute little rules to minimize just the politics, the so, so much emphasis on the politics, because, you know, we know that, I mean, that's the problem with polarization is we could become identified with our politics rather than as who we are as actual people. So again, going back to this idea of sea change and seeing people as humans, you know, we have to like put politics aside. So for the next dinner, I told, before everybody got there, I told them they couldn't talk about politics for 30 minutes and they could talk about anything else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was so awkward. <laughs> it was so awkward, but it's always awkward when you meet strangers. But I guess also that added layer of like, you kind of know why you're here, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. But anyway, so each time I just was, I just started experimenting with different things to do at each meal to try to like get us to humanize one another rather than get right into the political conversations. So that led to my thinking around how to use art as a way to ease into those conversations. Do you find that some people show up over and over? Yeah, I wish. So that that is one of the biggest failings of this project or of, of blueberries and cherries so far. And it's something that I'm working on. Every time I've done the dinner, it's been different people. There've been a few, uh, just a couple that I've invited back. I, I haven't made it like, super, you know, open. it's all by invitation. And so I think that I want to figure out a way to make it. That's why I want other people to do it and have them invite the same people over and over. I just want to sort of model how it's done. But I, what I want is for other people to like invite the same five people over every Saturday, you know, once a month on, you know, the first Saturday of the month and have real conversations over and over because yeah, you're not going to change the world with just one dinner. I get that. It's a start, but it's just a start. What's the best thing in your opinion that has come out of this? Well, I mean, the best thing that's come out of this is that it's, these dinners have actually evolved a lot. And so for almost two years, I essentially was only doing the dinners in my home for like six, eight, 10 people. And so, like I said, like I got a lot out of it, but I was trying to think like, well, how do I give that experience to other people? So last October, I actually, I had curated a small art show about immigration at a small museum in DC called the Hyrick House Museum. Um, the reason why I did the show around immigration is because Mr. Heyrich was a German immigrant in the 1800s and he built up this, like the biggest business in DC, a brewery. And in fact, it employed more people in DC than the government at the time. And so it was very successful. And then around World War One, he was discriminated against because he was German and, you know, of German descent. And the American government was asking for loyalty pledges from Germans because, you know, they thought their loyalties would be elsewhere. So he, Mr. Heyrich said, you know, F you basically, I'm a good American. And so I just was thinking like a hundred years later, as we talk about immigration now, a lot of the language that was being used against German immigrants in the early 1900s or around World War One is being used against other people now. And anyway, so that's what that whole show was about, having artists respond to the idea of like, what does it mean to be a good American? So as part of that art show in the museum, I organized a dinner for 50 people 
in the museum and across the political spectrum. And it was, again, it was amazing, like being in this museum space and having art as like the frame for the conversation. And so what came out of that was, um, okay, so then this guy from an organization called New American Economy came to the dinner. His name is Dan Wallace. And I had invited him because they do immigration policy. And he came and sort of, he started to see the value of using arts and culture as a way to talk about immigration policy. So now I've teamed up with New American Economy and American University School of Public Affairs to organize art shows and dinners across the political spectrum in six cities across America as a pilot program for figuring out how do we do this be even bigger. And so working with um, AU School of Public Affairs to develop sort of a toolkit for civil discourse. They have a program in civil discourse. And so how do we develop sort of a toolkit for doing this in, in cities all, you know, in, in cities all over the country and giving people the tools to have their own conversations. So that's the most amazing thing. So we're this year, we're going to embark on the six city tour, which is what I'm working on right now. What are the six cities? Oh yeah, the cities are so interesting. Um, Anchorage, Alaska, El Paso, Salt Lake City, um, Detroit, Sioux City, and the sixth one we're still, it's probably gonna be Northwest Arkansas, but we haven't confirmed that one yet. So the idea is to go into each city and ask artists to respond to this question. What does it mean to be an American in your city? And it'll, you know, we fully expect it to look so different from El Paso to Anchorage to Salt Lake City. How are the cities chosen? Um, New American Economy chose the cities. They, they work a lot uh, on the mayoral level, you know, rather than working at the state and federal, they're trying to think about policy at the city level. And so they have relationships in these cities and they are interested in red and purple places as, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, red and purple places, um, working on a very hyper-local level. Um, I think it's, I, I really enjoy like this idea of really thinking about community. Like, that's, I think that's why placemaking really, the, my experience as a placemaker fits in with why we're doing it on a very city level rather than, you know, trying to lobby for policy in Washington with, you know, Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just go right to the people. Yes. So are you going to all of those cities? Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, so I will... I will go to each city at least twice, uh, once to sort of do prep work and then going back for the actual dinners. Wow. Yeah. Wow. We have to get together again and record yeah. another podcast. Oh, that's a great yeah. idea. Yeah, oh. so you can talk, talk about how it's going. That's a great idea. Yeah. You know, it. I mean, my placemaking experience has definitely come in handy with this because I'm just so hyper aware of how, you know, I don't want to be this East Coast liberal elite person from Washington, D.C. Everybody hates Washington already, you know, and come into your town to like, you know, (laughs) fix your city or whatever. Like, you know, I'm very hyper aware of that. And so I've been, you know, and it is hard to form these relationships just over the phone. Like most of my planning has been over the phone at this point. I haven't actually been in any of those cities yet for planning purposes, but just trying to figure out who are the right partners in each city. Who am I supposed, who should I be inviting to the dinner? It can't be Philippa Hughes is coming to your city, you know? And I have to admit, like as a point of personal self-awareness, like I like being in the front line, you know, like I like speaking at conferences and stuff, but 
So with placemaking, it's been a very humbling experience to do placemaking because you do have to like recede into the background and like it's not about you, you know? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, that's just kind of like, I've gotten so much personal growth out of being trying, trying to learn how to be a better creative placemaker and how to be a better person who engages in civil discourse. Yeah, at the same time, I would imagine that you do, to do the kind of work that you do, you do have to be friendly. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah. open. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I do have those inherent skills. I mean, like, so I get that. Um, I think, you know, I, I, I do think that I am a, a person who's well-suited for work like this. You know, because I am like this extroverted person. So I do have some natural things that not everybody has. And so I have to be sort of aware, like, how do, how do we help people who are more introverted do this? They want to do this kind of work, but, you know, it's going to be a little harder just because of personality. Um, but, you know, I, I was also thinking about the fact that I, uh, one of, another reason why I think I'm well suited for this work is because for many reasons. One, I'm biracial and I grew up in a southern city that was black and white. And so my brother and I were the only Asian looking kids in our school our entire lives. And we didn't fit into anywhere. And so I've always been my whole life aware of, you know, what it feels like to kind of be an outsider or to see, to just not belong anywhere. And a lot of placemaking is about not, you know, feeling like things are passing you by. Like, that's a whole lot of like what these political conversations, people feeling like being, they're being left out, feeling like they don't belong anymore. You know, like that kind of, those feelings. Yeah, yeah. And I felt all of that. Feelings of alienation. Yeah. That's another thing that I've finally realized is like, you know, especially us on the, on the left, we're always like, look at these facts. Like, how can you possibly vote this way when you look at these graphs and charts and numbers and policies? And this makes, you know, you're so stupid for like voting this other way. It's like nobody actually votes based on facts and figures and charts. They base on their feelings because it's just not actually possible to have that much knowledge and information in most people's brains. Like, I obsessively follow politics and I, you know, I don't know, I, I, that's, this is part of my humbling experience when I realized, oh yeah, like, I think I know, I'm, like, I feel like I'm making these well-informed decisions when really, if we're really honest with ourselves, like, you don't really know as much as you think you know. You're really just making gut decisions based yeah. on your lived experience. Yeah. I've always felt it's a mistake to try to engage in an argument that is only based on facts yeah. and what you yeah. think is a logical argument. I, I agree with you. I think yeah. part of what art does is it makes us feel. Yes, exactly. And oh my gosh, I mean, that's why I think using art as a frame for these conversations that we're having at these dinners is so critical because it acknowledges that we're ha we have feelings, like, and that, and the, and our feelings are our driving motivation for so for everything, basically. So you have you, your hand in so many things. You also yes. produce <laughs> the Pink Line Project platform. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah. So Pink Line Project was what I started when I decided to stop being a lawyer and move into being the sort of arts producer. 
I called myself the chief creative contrarian for a long time. That was like a little self-given title, my C-suite title. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so I started Pink Line Project as sort of this umbrella for the blog that I was writing and for I had I built a calendar of all arty things that were happening in DC like the idea was that there was no place central place to go to find like kind of off the beaten path arts things to do and also the umbrella for all the arts events that I was producing I mean I was literally producing like a couple hundred events a year for a, a period of time or had my hand in that, if, if not directly influencing or producing. So it was, it was intense. <laughs> so yeah, so now Pink Line Project has, we're rebranding. In fact, as of today, <laughs> oh. um, we're, we call it PinkLineConnects.us because the idea is, uh, I realized that the central mission and idea for, for what Pink Line Project was right from the beginning was using arts as a way to connect people. And in fact, the name Pink Line came from the idea that, um, you know, in DC we have a metro where we have a red line and a yellow line. And so I was like, so my idea was like, the Pink Line connects all of us together. Because you know, if you get on the red line, it just gets you from here to there. But how do you get, you know, how do you connect it all up? So I always had this idea that art connected people and so I feel like it's kind of crystallized now in, in the name of the, you know, of changing the name to organization to really describe that sense of connection. But anyway, so now we, I've scaled back most of the arts events that, that I do. And I send a weekly email, basically, of my art picks for each week in D.C., and I try, I try to frame it as, hey, like just some of this stuff is gonna be weird, but you should just go try it because you never know when you're gonna connect with somebody at, because it was so weird that like, you know, you kind of bond over the weirdness or you're gonna discover some amazing new artist that you never heard of. Anyway, so it's, it's mostly a weekly email um, with my art picks that are usually off the beaten path and also organizing smaller events now that are aimed toward actually connecting people in, co- in real conversations. So it sounds like you work as an independent consultant. Oh, you know, yes. <laughs> in all of this, do you have any advice for people who are doing similar work elsewhere in the country? Yeah, you know, I for a while too, I was calling myself a hustler. <laughs> I mean, which, which is like basically what an independent consultant is, because you you constantly have to hustle. Like there is no paycheck that comes at the end of the week. So that's, I mean, that is my biggest piece of advice is that it's hustling constantly. So you, if you're not ready to do that, you should definitely not work independently. (laughs) (laughs) But I think also like another thing I've been thinking about is this idea of, there's this great speech that Steve Jobs gave to the Stanford class of, I think, 2005 for the graduation and he talks about dots and connecting the dots. Have you heard this? I have not. It's awesome. I really recommend it. It, He talks about how when you look back on your life, you can see how all these dots connected up to get you to where you are. But when you're, you know, 21 years old, sitting with your little mortarboard hat on, you can't see the dots. Like, you're not going to be able to see how they connect. So just know that the dots will eventually connect, you know, like it's sort of trying. So my little add on to Steve Jobs's um, speech is that my advice is throw out a lot of dots. And some people call that networking. (laughs) (laughs) But I just call it like, I just like to like, 
you know, I'll talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and but I don't like to call it networking because networking implies that you're like talking to them with the intent of like trying to get something out of them. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe I am. I, and maybe I am trying to get something out of them. I'm trying to get like a relationship out of them. Mm-hmm. Like, so my biggest advice is just like throw out a lot of relationship dots and don't worry about where they come, where, where, what will come of it. Like eventually the dots are going to connect up. You just can't, you just can't plan it on in advance. But yeah. they absolutely will. Like everything I've ever done, I can trace back to be like, oh yeah, that's because I did a favor for that one person and she did the next thing and that next person did that thing and here I am. That sounds like advice that I give younger people. Yeah, is, yeah. Um, just make a lot of friends. Just make a lot of friends. You just never know. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just relationship building. And it sounds like something, you know, you so hokey like we know that like you read you can read all kinds of articles and go to workshops and and they'll always say like it's about relationship building but really take it to heart like it really is about relationship building so actually you know i was saying that i am rebranding to pinkline project to become pinklineconnects.us but i'm actually doing sort of bigger sort of personal rebrand i don't even know what to call it at this point so i formed a new entity called curiosityconnects.us. This idea of, I guess what made me think of it, to, what reminded me to tell you about it, is because Curiosity Connects Us is about relationship building and about how curiosity about others forms the basis for relationships. Like you actually care to ask questions and be curious about somebody else. And that's the most important thing you can do if you want to build a relationship. Yes. For sure. There's nothing worse than being met with dead silence when you reveal something about yourself <gasps> yeah. that the pers- other people may find different or unique. Yeah. Well, you know, that's interesting too for me because I was thinking about, you know, what makes a good conversation? And I mean, asking really good questions is very important for sure. But also revealing yourself is really important. Like it's a two-way street. You can't just only be asking questions. You actually have to, you have to be vulnerable. Like I always make fun of the woo-woo, even though I'm actually super woo-woo myself, (laughs) but you do have to make yourself vulnerable. Like, and if you don't give something, how can you expect others to give their story back to you? And that's, again, how can you form relationships unless you give up a little bit of that part of yourself to the other person. So some people would say, why use art to open up these conversations? Couldn't you just talk? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not really. You can't just talk, apparently, because in our day and age, apparently people have forgotten how to talk to each other. (laughs) Joking aside. So I've been using art as a way to connect people since the very beginning of Pink Line Project, but I didn't realize fully what that meant until relatively recently when I met this woman named Elif who has been doing research and she recently came out with a book about museums as empathy spaces, empathy building spaces. And it just like hit me like a lightning bolt, like, oh, that's what I've been doing all this time. So her thesis is this, when humans experience a sense of awe and wonder, they become more curious about each other. And when you become more curious, you become more empathetic for your fellow man. 
And one way to experience awe and wonder is through art. I mean, there are many ways you can. You can see a beautiful sunset. Nature is a, is, is a great way to experience awe. And it just hit me like, oh, right. That's what I've been trying to do all these years. It's like use art as a way to create the sense of awe that connects people. And so just like talking to her made me realize that there's actual scientific research around this idea. Anyway, so that's that's why um, that's why art. I think art is a great way to frame conversations because it's it focuses on the way you feel about things rather than about what the facts and figures are. It shows you a different way to look at the world. Whether you agree with it or not, at least it shows you a different perspective. There's just so many great ways that art is a great tool for this, for, for at least beginning these conversations. But one thing that I think about a lot too is I think we have to be careful about the idea that art is going to solve any problem, right? Like art isn't the solution. It's, it, it's, it's the tool that we should use for good and not for evil. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. Well, the, this has been so much fun. I definitely want to do this again. Yeah. And I don't know, I may have to go to Arkansas or Alaska oh, <laughs> to catch up with you, huh? That could be interesting. <laughs> we should chat about that. Okay. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. You've been listening to Creative Place, produced by the National Consortium for Creative Placemaking. Visit us at cpcommunities.org and follow us on social media at cpcommunities. Bye for now.